Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnot. And I'm Sophia Hagolani-Albaum. We're really excited today to be getting into some topics that we have touched on in previous podcasts, but we haven't really confronted head on. And in addition, we're really lucky today because we have a fantastic person to help us explore some of these subjects. She has done a lot of different things, starting with a PhD that really looked at extractive industries. And she has moved into some other types of work, particularly policy work, policy manager work. She's worked as a research and policy advisor, but I am not doing justice. So I would like to introduce Catherine Trebek. Would you like to tell us a bit about who you are and what you've been up to? Thank you, Sophia, and absolutely lovely to be here chatting with you both today. So I'm Australian. I'm based in Glasgow, though, in Scotland, a country I've fallen in love with over the last few decades. And I now work for a new, well, relatively new organization called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. And the purpose of that organization is really to try to connect all the amazing work that's being done to try to make our economic system much more humane and more sustainable. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about, um, you said a couple of words. I heard sustainability. I heard economics. What does economics have to do with sustainability? Uh, everything almost. Almost, almost everything. So why we all was created and why I got into it and was part of the little group that founded it several years ago was that if you really look at so many of the challenges facing the world and you pretend you're like a, a four or five-year-old and you do what so many four and five-year-olds do is, and they're always saying, but why, why, why? You know, to the point it often gets annoying. But I think collectively humanity needs to be much more like that because all the societal challenges, all the aspects of environmental breakdown, when we channel that four or five-year-old and we ask, but why, but why, but why? And we look upstream to the root causes and we don't just look at the symptoms, we really look at the root causes. You find yourself facing the economic system, how it is structured, who's winning and who's losing, who's getting more resources, what sort of businesses make up the economic ecosystem, how we price materials, how we design work, how we distribute resources. So many of those questions packaged together Together, create an economic system. Of course, there's lots of work that happens outside the formal market economy as well. And all those dynamics, not least how we judge the success of the economic system, questions around our measures of progress, whether that's at the level of the macro economy, but also how we judge the success of businesses. And of course, how we do infrastructure, how do we design our towns, our cities, our transport networks, all those sorts of questions really come back to what's the economy about? How is it purposed? Is it serving humanity or is it extracting from humanity and from nature? There's so much fascinating stuff there. And I love this approach because in many ways, that's, that's a very old school economics approach. I mean, that is like going back to Adam Smith, moral philosophy, even not just simply looking at the, the flow of currency as it's kind of become in the popular imagination today, but truly looking at those fundamental social goods that are just as important as currency goods. And this is something that I, I've lamented looking at political economy, how that sort of moral philosophical aspect has fallen out. And so that's something that's so refreshing to see about this. Maybe it's because about 
two miles up the road from me is Adam Smith's statue in the Adam Smith Business School at the University of Glasgow. So maybe it's just something in the air, but I, I really agree. And I often, I don't describe myself as an economist. I often say my, my economics degree is way down the back of the sofa, but I really think, I think, and I think the older I get, the more I do think actually it's a political economist eyes and worldview that are shaping my work. And it's a lovely um, description of political economy I heard a few years ago, really just saying, economists look at the economy without looking at politics and power and political scientists look at politics without taking into account the economic system and of course then political economists put the two together and I think that's that really interesting space of how wealth and power and agenda setting and participation and how we distribute resources and what mechanisms we use to do so that to me is one of the most fascinating spaces to be in. Absolutely. So how did you get here? How did you get to this point where you are able to see this really holistic view? Um, You mentioned that there's an economy degree back on the back corner of the couch. How did you get to this spot? So many years ago, I I was really interested in community development, and then I spent a bit of time in Africa, and that sort of changed my, my approach to really thinking about the bigger bigger structural shifts that leave communities and force communities to be vulnerable. And then I ended up doing a PhD, as we mentioned earlier, looking at a big mining company in Australia and how they were shaped by the community around them, often First Nations communities and other forms of political activism and how sensitive or otherwise that mining company was to those pressures and and demands. And that really fascinated me, that different forms of power. I mean, these were local communities where life expectancy was about 20 years below that of the the Australian population. Often English was a third, fourth language and using amazing tactics, they were able to really force some concessions and change the company's behaviour. And then instead of carrying on in that line of work, I moved to Scotland. Um, I would love to tell you it was because of some career sensible decision, but to be honest, I just really love Scotland, (laughs) all the mountains and the people and the the humour. So I moved here and spent a few years working for a university, carrying on that question about what's the role of businesses in in questions like economic development but I wanted to get a little bit I guess closer to impact this was the time prior to the knowledge transfer agenda in universities prior to the open access agenda and I just particularly that space I just felt was a little bit too far removed from me and so I worked for a social enterprise for a bit and then I spent just under 10 years working for Oxfam big international organization really focused on poverty reduction and through that work and I was particularly looking at poverty and inequality firstly in Scotland and just that paradox of this extraordinarily wealthy country but yet there are places in in Glasgow up the road from me where life expectancy is going down, people's health inequalities, those big gaps between health inequalities getting worse. They've had decades of economic growth and yet poverty in the last 10, 15 years has largely flatlined and really thinking, well, what is it about, about the nature of the economic system and using some of the thinking from, I guess, the Oxfam world to apply. And that really got me into the space around different measures of progress. It was all too apparent that political leaders in Scotland had focused too narrowly on expanding and speeding up the rate of GDP growth and hadn't paid enough attention to other aspects of that make life worth living, um, as Robert Kennedy would say. Things like their, their social assets, their friendships, their human assets, their health, their local environment. 
And so that set me on the path of really thinking about different measures of progress. And then that takes you into this wider community of activists, of scholars, of practitioners who are looking to, in the, I guess, the broadest term, create a new economy. We now call it a well-being economy because it's really being explicit about the economy needs to be designed to service and deliver human and ecological well-being. So a long journey and a, a at the time, never really felt that logical. But in retrospect, I guess it has been a sort of a fairly one foot in front of the other that's led, led me here. Isn't that how it goes on these uh, life journeys? I think it's so funny how those measures sometimes, like, for example, government measuring how well we're doing off GDP. Sometimes I think that we look at our own journeys and I feel like as a child, you know, you're taught that you have to go from point A to point B and maybe a straight line. But I guess as I get older also, it's the journey that's more exciting and important. And that does sound like it all quite naturally led into where you are right now. Yeah, it is so fascinating, like how life comes together like that. But something I, I want to ask here, and especially for our, our listeners at home, because, you know, we've come to think of economies as just a sort of uh, almost like a, a religious thing. It's like, you know, there is the one true economy and we are following that economy. Uh, and now we have the sort of neoliberal paradigm and the global economy. So what's the difference between the well-being economy and what we have now? So, oh gosh, so many dimensions to that. So if you think in, I guess, in a nutshell of what the, the current economic system that a lot of people would describe as a, a neoliberal paradigm, one that assumes that competitiveness and competition between actors is always a good thing, that acquisition of more is unilaterally a good thing, that marketization of everything is a good thing, and even our measures of progress, GDP will go up the more we marketize different areas of life, the more we outsource our care for our family or our, you know, looking after our home or feeding ourselves, the more we buy things rather than growing them in an apple tree or beans in our backyard, uh, the more we cut down forests and, and sell the timber from that. The more we marketize various aspects of life, that's assumed to be a good thing. And our measures of progress, as I said, are designed to incentivize that or in a way that incentivizes that. Also assumes that human beings are ultimately fairly greedy and all about maximizing their own utility. And often that's translated into consumption. And of course, we have sort of socioeconomic forces compelling that, uh, whether it's advertising telling us that turning our, our wants into needs and telling us that we're no good if we don't have certain material things or our houses don't look a, a certain way. And it's also this idea that public sector and government provided activities are of lesser value and that the best outcome is to sell something on the market and have price systems determine allocation rather than other mechanisms of determining allocation such as rights or, or basic needs. And so that's in a way the economic system that we've we've had in the past. Uh, it's also been, and some, I'm sympathetic to this, some people said actually it wasn't neoliberal. What it was was financialized and, and it was about creating financial assets. And if you think of what governments did after the global financial crisis just over 10 years ago, they weren't neoliberal 
policy prescriptions. They invested huge amounts of money, public money, in bailing out private sector entities, particularly particularly banks. And you know, if we we're really strict about neoliberalism, they would have said, "You're on your own, guys. There's there's nothing here for you. You know, you sink or swim." And and yet, what they did is they said that to individuals. <laughs> they basically you know, really cut back the social infrastructure. They said, "You sink or swim." But it was, I guess, socialization for the profiteers and the rentier economy rather than supporting the social fabric and and communities around the world. And it's also an economic system that is come to be dependent on economic growth. And that I think, I mean, there's a lot of complex interweaving forces and dynamics here, but I think that's one of the root causes of, of the strife that we find ourselves in. And of course, governments, they will pay attention to other goals, but so often when it comes to the crunch, it's the goal of faster GDP growth that will trump all other objectives. And so you see environmental measures, for example, downplayed in the pursuit of growth. You see new airports being created because they'll be good for growth and the impact on the environment will be conveniently put aside. So there's a there's a lot of interweaving dynamics there. A well-being economy is in a way really at the most fundamental. It's about saying, well, in the past, humanity has been set up in a way that serves the economy and nature has been seen as a source to extract from and pump into production systems and then just a a sink for the waste of those production systems. We've had human beings treated as, as I say, as just-in-time inventory the same way, for example, Sophia, if you ran a cafe, you would order you know, seven cartons of milk for next day's trade and only that amount. Uh, you, you know, you'd order just as much as you need. And yet we've had human beings being treated in the same way, literally on demand at the click of an app through the, the gig economy or the hyper-casualized or freelancer economy. And this is a sort of thing that Carl Polanyi was writing about more recently, David Harvey, and really saying you cannot treat people like that. And then what we're and then is it any surprise that in the last few decades, we've seen communities breaking down. We've seen people despairing at their fortunes. We've seen life expectancy flatlining in so many countries, rising levels of suicide or drug and alcohol abuse, and, and people just feeling that they have no purpose and they have no control over their lives. So that's a sort of dystopian dire view of what's been going on in the last few years at the economic realm and the impact on, the, on people. The wellbeing economy is saying instead of having humanity and the planet serve the economy, it's about having the economy serve humanity. And that's a really fundamental repurposing, but it's also about a mindset shift. And ecological economists, for example, and feminist economists have long been saying that the economy is embedded in society and the two of those are embedded in nature. And the wellbeing economy agenda takes that mindset and says we really need to recognise that and we need to see the economy not as a goal in and of itself but as a mechanism to deliver what I describe as higher order goals. And so at its most simplest, the wellbeing economy is about social justice on a healthy planet. The question then, and probably often the, the answer is more complicated than the question, is how do we go about building that? And that's so many different changes at all levels of the economic system. So it's a not just a 10-point plan, but it's almost like a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle of changes that we need. And what's good is that there are people active at all areas of that. There are people who are creating businesses in service of that, people who are uh, working in community projects. There are people, you know, not enough, but a few politicians in the corridors of power who are trying to figure out how do we put this into place in the policy regime. So there's action happening. 
Not nearly enough, though, and that's part of the reason uh, why the Wellbeing Economy Alliance was created, was to try and just put a bit of, this is a terrible metaphor, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, a bit of rocket fuel uh, into in behind those amazing work that helped them connect a little bit more together and inspire others, but also shine a light on that work. Because I think in terms of demonstrating the feasibility and the desirability of change, this action that is happening maybe in microcosms, what it proves is there is no excuse. This, this is possible. Doing things differently is absolutely possible. Thank you so much for sharing with us and giving us a better view into what that means, the well-being economy. What about, I mean, to play devil's advocate here a bit, what about all the improvements that have come under the economic system that we've been in? I mean, hasn't there been good parts of it too? Yeah, 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 exactly. And there have been fruits of fruits of growth, as, as you might describe them. And you think particularly in, I guess, the post-war era. This was the era that was just, has been described as the golden age of capitalism. This was when life expectancies were rising. We've seen diseases being eradicated, literacy rates improving. But what was happening then is, well, partly, let's remember, they were hugely gender and racial inequalities as well. So those areas of life were certainly not attended to. But in terms of some, and, and we can't forget that or romanticise that period, but in terms of some other aspects of social progress, you know, things like life expectancy, maybe poverty reduction, there was some progress. And the key, I guess, unifying criteria was that the fruits of growth were used to invest in collective institutions like health system, education system, we had fairly progressive taxation system, growth went to areas that it was needed. And then what and actually you saw if you look at a measure like the genuine progress indicator that takes GDP and basically corrects it for the good and the bad. So it adds in good things like volunteering or access to green space and it takes out bad things such as congestion or inequality. And so you have what this measure of genuine progress. And up until the late 1970s, 1978 to be specific, GDP and genuine progress rose fairly uniformly. And then after that period, genuine progress started to flatline and GDP per capita just carried on merrily on upwards. And so what happened is you've got this a different sort of economic system that was no longer being constructed deliberately in a way. I mean, you had unions securing a lot of labour rights. You had the sort of social welfare state being built as well during that period. And then after, from the 80s onwards, you saw dismantling a lot of those hard-won gains. You saw the coming down of, of uh, taxes on the, the very wealthiest, so people raced away with money at the very, very top. You also saw mounting evidence, and, and you know, no more so than, than this year where we've just had the hottest September on record, mounting evidence of the environmental limits of that model of doing the economy. And so, yes, we can point to some of the fruits of growth, but just because something has worked okay with the caveats that we've already flagged in the past doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the right recipe for the future. We're in new terrain now. We're also entering terrain, particularly in, in GDP-rich countries. I hate the phrase developed or undeveloped, but in, in GDP-rich countries where the, the returns to growth have started to run out of puff. So no longer is more GDP delivering good lives for people. No longer is it translating to better quality jobs. No longer is it translating to rising living standards. And that ha that diminishing marginal returns, less bang for your buck from GDP, is it's starting to take place in a lot of countries around the world. But perhaps even more in a more sinister way than that, so much of what growth is having to pay for 
is in a way to undo the damage of the growth-orientated, inhumane, unsustainable economic model. And you only have to look at the sort of social policy debates in parliaments or in newspapers every day to see examples of that. Uh, This is what social policy people might call failure demand or in environmental terms, ecological economists would refer to as defensive expenditure. Essentially, so much resource in our collective effort goes to cleaning up, healing, fixing, repairing, after the fact, avoidable damage that if we had an economic system that was delivering good lives for people from the beginning, we wouldn't have to invest in. So you get what Herman Daly, who's one of the great scholars of, say, steady state economies, calls uneconomic growth, where we've passed the point where economic growth has been useful. And it's now uneconomic growth because it's sort of chewing up the very fabric of what we need to have, have good lives, whether it's communities or the environment. Yeah, it's the uh, the machinations of the capitalist machine, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry to giggle, but yeah, no, it's um, sobering when we start to really think about it because I think that so many of these things, when we're just going about our day-to-day life, in certain respects, it's easy to maintain a cognitive dissonance about the widespread ramifications of our day-to-day decisions. You know, I, I'm participating in the current economic system because it's easier. It also really forces you to, and it's very, it's very hard to step out from such a dominant paradigm where whether it's infrastructure or employment structures or how you provide for your family are dependent. So, I mean, this is an enormous challenge to un- unpack that. Uh, just because it's enormous doesn't mean we have the option of shying away from it, though, sadly. I mean, we have to. We, we don't have a choice if we want to have a future for, for our planet. Definitely. And I, I think it's something really important in all of this. Well, I mean, a, a couple of different things. One, with our current economic system, how much of this is being thrust upon the average person while ignoring the massive companies and wealthy people in the background who are doing the majority of the damage or have more of the ability to stop the damage than the average person. Hey, yeah, you know, use a cardboard straw, but the average person doesn't have much of a choice. And as well, that that goes into, as you said, the work opportunities and job opportunities. And I think that this this transitions into something that like I've I've been interested in for quite some time, social enterprise, being able to give people that sort of option that puts people and community at the center. So there's so many aspects of that that question. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's, it's brilliant because you've touched on a couple of the dynamics, I think, that are at the heart of some of these conversations. And, and one is the, the question of power. And this, I think we've got to collectively, those, those are, you know, folks, so talking about the economy, one, one have to have the conversation much more about how the economy is deliberately designed. This is not like gravity where we can't do anything about it. And often you hear people talk about the economy is broken. I would never say that. The economy is not broken. It is doing exactly what it has been designed to do by folks who are very wealthy and have got ignored extraordinary political power. There's this idea of political capture that I think we've really got to recognise and then take a good hard look at our democratic systems and understand how much they exacerbate uh, the, the design and setting the rules of the game. And this is what the great Danella Meadows would describe as a success to the successful. If you're lucky enough to have wealth, you can shape um, the mechanisms that enable you to get more wealth. And we're seeing that there was a 
report out saying the extent to which certain billionaires have increased their wealth during the last few months of the COVID crisis. But even prior to that, in the last decade post-GFC, global financial crisis, when most ordinary everyday people were seeing austerity, seeing public provision, public services cut, seeing their jobs become more insecure. The vast majority of wealth that was created in the last decade or so went to those at the very top. So so there's a huge question around power and agency amongst, you know, some people have more agency than others. But everyone has some agency. And I think there is a role for individual action, if nothing else, that it it avoids the sense of hopelessness. And it does help people feel that they're trying to to do do something good. They're being part of something that's moving in in a positive direction. And that brings a sense of optimism and that brings more action. There's also something really important in individual action around demonstration effect. And the more people do something, the more that will demonstrate to political leaders that this is something that their citizens, their voters take seriously. And so there's there's those dynamics there. But I think anything that puts all the onus and expectation on individual behaviour change, I think, is a seriously flawed change strategy because individual behavioural change is so constrained by wider wider systems. And then I guess on a more positive aspect, this idea of social enterprise. And, I mean, I am so heartened by this almost this plurality of different business forms that are emerging. I mean, Herad Sabiji from, from Harvard has described it as the new fourth sector of so many different business models that are being created with this idea that profit-making, commercial viability is not a goal in and of itself. It's a vehicle to deliver higher order goals. And it's almost the equivalent of putting GDP and economic growth back in its box and say, well, the direction and the composition matters much more than just the rate in and of its own. And so social enterprises, for example, that have an asset lock that are wanting to really focus on directing the benefits of their economic activity to social issues or environmental issues. I get overly excited about worker cooperatives because they're about how we distribute the value that's created within a firm much more fairly than having so much of it be siphoned up by people who, I mean, ultimately, this is what Thomas Piketty was saying, that your wealth will make more money for you than you know the three of us could make in our in our day jobs. It's the rentier economy. And so if we if we stop siphoning up rents to those who are lucky enough to have wealth and sit back and let their wealth make more money for them, we can have the wealth that's created be returned to those who did the creating of it. So I like I love worker cooperatives, but there's a whole plethora of these business models. There's benefit corporations, there's community interest companies, there's economy for the common good businesses. I mean there's a whole suite of different models that enable people to undertake provision and trading and and yes you know they they're competing with each other i mean i want if there's two social enterprises selling coffee i'm going to go to the one that makes a better coffee there's a bit of horizontal competition there what i don't want is them competing with their workers or with their local community or, or you know, with government so there's a question of horizontal or vertical competition i think but it's really thinking about yeah how can we mobilize businesses to be part of a positive change rather than them being extractive That's such a good way to frame it. I don't think I'd thought about that previously, you know, the business working against the worker. Yeah, I'd rather that the businesses are competing with each other than competing with their labor. It's actually very interesting. Um, Finland has a very long history of worker cooperatives dating back to before Finland was even Finland. Um, As you know, it's a pretty young country here. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of um, historical 
uh, cooperative that they had even pre-industrialization in Finland, like in the agricultural and also forestry community. My work deals with a uh, co-created farming experiment in the Finnish countryside. And so it's, um, I, I love that you love cooperatives. That makes me feel very good because yeah, I also love Another lovely um, commonality that Finland and Scotland have because I mean, Scot Scottish co uh, cooperative roots go back many decades and co-ops predate the modern form of the publicly listed company. They've been around longer and the you know, very famous Robert Owen at a place called New Lanark, south of Glasgow. But there's a, that's a lovely commonality. And I, I was in Helsinki and is it Tampere? Is that how you say it? Up just Tampere. And the guy who created the cotton mill there was a guy called, is it James Robertson or John Robertson, who comes from Scotland? And so there's that big, is it cotton manufacturing? I think so. There's these lovely parallels and connections. And I was sharing with an audience I was speaking to that in a way our flags are quite similar. You just need to sort of tilt the tilt the blue and the white lines and they even that they, they look similar. So the, the co-op history and the you know putting co-ops at the heart of the economy is a lovely parallel. And What's great in, in Scotland now is when people say, well, what does it mean to create a wellbeing economy? I think having things like social enterprises or worker co-ops make up a much higher percentage of the economic ecosystem is important. And so if governments are taking this seriously, they need to get behind those sort of business models, whether that's incentives through the tax system or procurement and business advice. So, that, for example, there's a government agency here, and if, I bet if any of you knocked on their door and said, I'm thinking of setting up a business, what should I do? They'd probably just direct you in the, you know, here's a for-profit business model. They wouldn't say, hey, have you thought about being a social enterprise or have you thought about setting up a worker co-op? All those little moments, those little junctures are opportunities to start to inculcate the ideas that are so important to a well-being economy. Something I find so interesting in all of this, um, and, and I think, and it goes back to much earlier in the conversation, how there are all kinds of programs that will be funded by you know higher gdp countries to have social enterprises in lower gdp countries but when it comes to actually doing it at home and addressing the just even domestic issues where there's yeah. like just as much need uh, it, it's just you know anathema Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's a similarly similar story of when I sort of started to get excited by the potential of worker and producer co-ops in my, my time at Oxfam. I mean, supporting the creation of particularly producer co-ops is, is just bread and butter uh, in, in sort of that development, for want of a better term, that sort of development world of really recognising that through collective power, uh, producers, whether it's women dairy farmers in Ethiopia or beekeepers or you know, oil producers in Palestine, by working together and sharing their production, maybe sharing advice, marketing, maybe logistics, they can start to have a toehold and rather than being just a price price taker. And, and, you know, it's almost just bread and butter. And I think, yeah, it just proves actually in a way too that there is no correlation between wisdom and ideas and, and GDP per capita of a country too. I mean, a lot of these things are inherent in many countries around the world. And, and these ideas may not use the word wellbeing economy, but things like, you know, Buen Vivir from Latin America, a lot of the ideas around Ubuntu from South Africa, a lot of the, and of course, First Nations communities have had that mindset of the economy being in service and nature and the natural world, not just now, but for six, seven generations being at the, part, at the heart of their thinking. So I think one of the best 
most exciting things about this conversation is the possibility to really learn from all that, those ideas and wisdom that come from other parts of the world, not just from mainstream economics textbooks that were taught in you know, economics 101 at our universities in rich world capital cities. This is fascinating, uh, but something I want to throw at you, which is it's been thrown my way because I've given some presentations in the past on on social enterprise. And like, well, I mean, I think it's it's something that's very valuable for our listeners. And I think this concept, you know, you've you've put it forward very clearly, but there's always this question of like, so what's the difference between social enterprise and corporate social responsibility? And also, how do you define a social enterprise to prevent competitive and capitalist-driven corporations from taking advantage of policies that should be benefiting social enterprises. And of course, corporations in the past do take over. Uh, you know, we've seen corporate takeovers of businesses that were set up with a social purpose and a social mission and were very held in great esteem by consumers. Uh, and, you know, whether it was Body Shop being taken over by L'Oreal, for example, or Ben & Jerry's and Unilever, I mean, there's, there's lots of examples of that. Some of them now are starting to put in clauses that, that pre prevent that. And I think the question around how, and it shows actually one of the challenges here around access to capital and how do we ensure that businesses can get financial or physical capital even that they require without necessarily having to default to listing on the stock exchange with all the different pressures that comes with that for faster, faster share price growth and dividend payments. And that is essentially an extractive um, business, business model because by definition it's extracting every dollar that goes to a share share owner is a dollar that's not paying a, a going being paid to a worker or being invested in the local community or invested in environmental uh, protection the question around csr versus social enterprise is a really really interesting one and i've i studied quite a bit as i talked about earlier around uh, when businesses are responsive and and so i sort of reshaped it as corporate social responsiveness and to me that is about how can societies and consumers and workers and, and other stakeholders shape the operating terrain of business so that it listens to a wider set of voices. And some cases that works and some cases bad behaviour just will go unnoticed or there won't be enough activity to really get that on their corporate radar and get them to change their behavior or governments won't care about it and so they you know, there won't be enough support for mobilization to get attention paid to that challenge so it will csr even as responsiveness or as some sort of notion of responsibility will only ever go for so far and it's also no matter how, you know, there are probably some really good people working in some CSR offices around the world who are probably really smart and care passionately about what they're doing and probably can deliver really interesting projects and programs. No matter what, though, when they go to work each day, they still have to think, how does this deliver for the business? What's the business case for this activity? Which might mean one community here will get really brilliant provision. The one up the road that the business has no interest in We'll get nothing. So it really it just shows how sporadic and contingent any positive benefit, and that's the best case scenario, less cynical scenario can come from CSR. What I really like about the social enterprise model, and there's a huge diversity too, and lots of arguments in the social enterprise community are around things like asset locks, payment of staff, uh, salary ratios, all those sorts of questions. I think they're important debates to be having, but they if they can set themselves up in a way where the ultimate benefit is 
for community benefit. And, and so you're getting further iterations of social enterprise around community interest companies. And you're, and you're seeing things like, you know, the economy for the common good charter and those balance sheets that are really pushing to go a lot, a lot further. And I think what they just do is they reposition the economic activity, as we've said before, as a vehicle rather than an ends in and of itself. And again, that's a really profound repurposing. And so we're seeing a lot of examples of that. So this these guys keep cup an australian company that's been listed as a benefit corporation one thing i really like about there is one their commitment to investing back in their local communities and go not just net zero but properly zero in their environmental impact but they also and this is a hint to the extent to which so many business models externalize environmental damage for something like delivery they've said there is no such thing as free delivery so we're going to put it on our prices and you're going to have to understand you to pay for it and yet that goes against the grain of so many particularly now during COVID when everyone's delivering so much online with all the environmental impact that's coming with that so I think there's examples of business models that enable you to take different choices uh, because you've got different priorities and, and that's what's so exciting about these this plethora or the fourth sector of different business models that are emerging. So where can somebody go to like find this fourth sector? Because I know that if I'm, you know, going on my regular day and I, you know, just go to the mall and go to the university, where do I look to find this fourth sector? You'll probably, if in the mall, there'll probably be um, goods and services that are created and sold. And particularly, you know, if you're saying in Finland, there's a lot of worker co-ops there. So a lot of services and the goods you're buying will probably might be provided so it's sort of looking deeper on the under the label or looking at the website in universities a lot of universities uh depending on how privatized university campus provision has, has come but say in the states a lot of the bookstores are all you know co-ops there and, and so there's examples everywhere we've got a document on our website called the guide to business as unusual and it's basically how can businesses deliver the objectives of a well-being economy and there's lots of lovely case studies there but also tools for businesses to utilize to try to go on a journey to transform themselves to perhaps a, a well-being economy business and there's heaps written about it. I mean, there's lots of organisations really wanting to connect and mobilise these sorts of activities. So whether it's advice people need or just inspiration, uh, they'll, they'll find it out there just with a, a couple of clicks. But I'd start, I'd recommend by starting with the business guide that's on our website. If you just type in we or business guide, it will come up, I'm sure. But use a cozy and not Google to do that. Definitely. Well, we will make sure to link to that down in the show notes so our listeners can check that out, hopefully on a um, social enterprise web browser. <laughs> so while our listeners are checking out your website, um, I was looking around on it and I saw something that was called WeGo. Could you tell me a little bit about what that was? It looked like it was really interesting. So WeGo is a partnership of governments and we're hoping in due time might become a really powerful alternative to groupings on the global political scale, global geopolitics groupings, where so often the entry ticket to these clubs is how big is your GDP? Things like the G7, the G20, these sorts of clubs that take big decisions that affect countries around the world are uh, modelled on measures of progress that, for all the reasons we've talked about and perhaps many more, are uh, anachronistic, 
given the challenges our world faces. And so WeGo is led by Scotland with New Zealand, Iceland and Wales. And we hope Finland at some point will join officially. We know they're joining the conversations uh, as an observer and certainly part of the discussions. But essentially it's about governments recognizing that success in the 21st century can't just be about GDP per capita. It has to be about how do we deliver for human and ecological well-being. And then I guess the next inevitable question from bureaucrats and civil servants and politicians is, well, okay, how do we do this? Because this is enormously challenging. And so all those governments and many more are doing their own different ways of interpreting that agenda. They're trying different experiments. You've got New Zealand, for example, with its wellbeing budget. You've got Iceland with its amazing work on gender equality. Scotland's got work on a national performance framework. Wales has got something called the Future Generations Commissioner, which I think is just fantastic and dedicate. And you've, I think Finland's had what a Future Generations Committee in Parliament for a long, long time. You've got Wales saying we're going to scrutinise all government policy according to how it affects the well-being of current and future generations. And so there's different things to learn from all those governments and none of them have cracked it. But they're united, I guess, by their, their ambition to put well-being into economic policy making, but also united by a humility that they need to learn from each other to go further. So it was launched at the OECD Wellbeing Forum a few years ago, and we have Joseph Stiglitz there saying, you know, this is a really great initiative. And it's really exciting to hear that Finland's joining those conversations and hopefully in due course will be an official member. But I think there's something really hopeful uh, about this role of doing international relations as well, particularly in this day and age where we see governments really sidling up and competing with each other and what we need is more international cooperation and solidarity and, and collaboration. And so WeGo is a really lovely initiative. Um, it was a great, it's a, been a project I've been working on for a long time. And it was quite exciting when last year, Nicola Sturgeon, who's the First Minister of Scotland, and she did her TED talk. And I guess heads of state probably only get one chance at the TED talk. I don't know if you can do two. But she chose to do her TED talk talking about wellbeing economy agenda and the WeGo partnership so and that and it must have struck a chord because within a week that Ted had been watched by over a million people so it's quite there is something that people know change needs to happen even people at the heart of government and WeGo I think is a great example of that. Thank you so much for sharing with us a little bit about that. I'm I'm sure now that the podcast will get at least a million. We've got it. We've got a number to beat. So now we know. It's up on the wall. You know, it's, it's actually. I'm pretty sure. I, I mean, I I think I actually saw that TED talk myself because I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. But unfortunately, I, I know we're getting towards the the end of our of our time to uh, be able to talk. We've covered so many different things and. One of the things that's so great about these topics um, is that uh, they fit very well into the question. The uh, question. The question. The question. So for our listeners at home, what can, you know, your, your just average person do? How can they learn more, do more, become part of it, uh, make a difference if they are so inspired? So we've got a platform called We All Citizens, and that is designed for anyone, wherever they are in their own world, to 
connect with others, to share hope, to add value to each other's work. So everyone's welcome on that. If people are working for a particular organisation that's relevant to this work, we'd really welcome them as a member of We All. It's really diverse, there's no cost to join. And, and I describe it as, the, I guess the entry hurdle is if you think the economy needs to be transformed to make it more humane and more sustainable and you want to work with others to do so, then you're welcome. So all the information about that is on our website. And if folks want to learn more, we're pulling together a resources page with all sorts of materials, podcasts, so we must put this one up, videos, uh, research papers, reports, blogs for people to dive in and, and wrap their head around some of these issues. But in terms of if people want to do more, I think one of the most powerful things and actions people can take is keep the conversation going. Uh, inspire others to ask questions about the economy, to not take as given the way the economy operates now, to ask deeper questions about why the economy is doing what it's doing and why we take economic decisions the way we do and just try to expand the imagination of folks around you to think that something different is possible, something that will be different will be definitely desirable. And it's in our power if we work together to change the economic system and not just take it as given or has been imposed upon us. Imagination, the uh, enemy of extractivism. Um, if our listeners would like to not just find out more about WeGo, but uh, would like to follow some of your activities, is there anywhere they can find you? Yeah, on, on webs? Uh, it's at Kay Trebek. And much to my embarrassment and mortification, I also have a website where I put most of my, my talks. Um, mainly did it for my mum, but it's it's there now. <laughs> so it's katherinetrebek.com. So there's lo loads of information there too. I'd love to stay in touch with your listeners, definitely. Great. Thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation. We could go on about these topics. I know that we've just barely, barely started to scratch the surface of um, this universe of alternatives that could exist in the economic realm. So we really thank you for giving us um, a little bit of a crash course and in insight into starting to be able to think about these things. Such a pleasure and lovely to speak to you both. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Catherine Trebek for coming on and having such a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation with us. Please join us next month when we'll be talking with Joshua Mata about the intersection of labor movements, environmental protection, and democracy. From the starry winter skies of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sofia Hagelani-Elbov, thank you for listening, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time. Oh,